this week. John chapter 6, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for the, the wonderful honor and privilege, blessing, humbling in all ways that you have given us, Lord, to come and to gather around your word. What a blessing it is, Lord, to, to look down at the scriptures and to ask you for your insight and ask you, Lord, for your direction. And I pray, God, that that would be the case this morning as we look into your word. We pray that you would give us understanding. We pray, God, that you would give us illumination, illumine our eyes, illumine our hearts, illumine our minds to your word and the meaning thereof. And Lord, I decrease that you may increase and I become less so that you can become more. I pray that you would move me, Lord, although you are using me, I pray that you would move me out of the way this morning. Lord, I pray that your people would not hear me or see me, but your word would stand over all of us this morning, including myself and especially myself. Let your word stand true. Let every mouth be silenced before your word. In the name of our Lord, we pray. Amen. Good morning. Welcome. It is nice to have you here this morning. We are blessed to, to see your uh, smiling faces as you are joining us once again for worship. Last time we were together, we looked at, and we have been looking at, the crowd's reaction to Christ and His miracle and also to His sermon. The last time we were together, we were looking at a reaction to the crowd, or the crowd's reaction to Christ in two statements that He makes within one sentence. And let me just say, um, I was speaking to a brother this past week and I was asking him how the service went for him. And he began to say it was okay. I was kind of lost in some areas, so forth and so forth. And my question to him was, are you reading? And his response was, was, well, no. And I said, if you're reading, the things that I'm going through right now will help to make a lot more sense. I think even Arnold and I had this conversation that if you're reading ahead, if you know we're going through John chapter 6 and you're reading John chapter 6 for yourself, studying it for yourself... As we start to go through John chapter 6 or 7 or 8 or 9 or whatever we go to, all of these things will start to come to life because you've been there. You've been reading these things. You've been studying these things. And there will be things that stand out to you that you did not see the first time. Or there may be things that you come up to me afterwards and say, did you notice this that I didn't notice when I studied? So it is to your benefit that you go ahead and study the rest of this chapter and on and on. So that when we come together to exposit or exegete these passages, you'll have an idea of where, what we're talking about, rather than it all being brand new to you. Does that make sense? Amen. So the crowd is coming to Christ, and there are two things that they are responding to, especially in verse number 41. He says to them, number one, he is the bread of life. Now this crowd has been coming to Christ with the hopes that he would once again satisfy their physical hunger. And... When finally they have caught up to Jesus, he's telling them that he's not going to give them any more bread. Instead, he's saying to them over and over again that he is the bread of life. Remember this? All of their hopes and all of their expectations of more bread have been shattered by this man who is now saying to them that the satisfaction that they are looking for is found in him. And how could he say such a thing? How could he say that all satisfaction is found in him? What would give this man the audacity to make such a claim? 
Jesus tells them because he came down from heaven. Jesus says that he is the bread that came down from heaven. And that is why he could make such an audacious claim that he is the soul satisfier, that he is the, the one true soul food. Amen. The crowd did not know how to handle this statement because they could only see Jesus in human terms. They could only see him on a human level. So Jesus rebukes them because of their rejection and then also gives them their reason or gives them a reason for their rejection. He says to them in verse 44, and memorize this verse for yourself. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can. That is called a universal negative. No one in all of creation has the ability to come. No one is able. No one has the ability to come to Christ unless what? Unless he is drawn by the Father. And anyone who is drawn by God, remember this from last time, anyone who is drawn by God comes to Christ. If you are being drawn by God, the only place to go is to Christ. If you go into another direction, you are not being drawn by Christ, you are being drawn by Satan. And finally, Jesus ends his rebuke with a restatement of who he is and why he has come. Let's stand for the reading of God's word in John chapter 6, verse 51 through 59. I told my wife this morning how discouraged I was because I have taken six or seven weeks and I have one more week of teaching. And R.C. Sproul taught verses 51 to 71 in 22 minutes. I have a long way to go. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for life of the world is my flesh. Verse 52. Then the Jews, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? Verse 53. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. For whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the father has sent me, as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. May be seated. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word to our ears this morning. I'd like you to think about a few things this morning as we get into these passages. I'd like you to think about the fact that we live in a spiritually hungry world. And I'd like you to let that that sentence sink into your minds this morning. We live in a spiritually hungry world Amen. every day. People are searching for what they're searching for meaning. Yes. yes, food as well. They're searching for meaning. They're searching for purpose. Yes. Every single day, people wonder 
why they are here. And they will take a hundred different roads in order to find the meaning to that question. Why am I here? We have been created with this hunger. We've been created with a hunger to understand purpose and meaning in our lives. That is why you were so crazy as a kid. Because you were searching for purpose. You were searching for meaning. That's why no matter actually how old you are, you can find people, even old, that are still trying to find out, what am I here for? We've been created with this desire for meaning in our lives and we have been created with a, a desire to have purpose in our lives. Genesis 1.26 and Genesis 3.8 explain that we have been created to serve, worship and fellowship with God. We are created to have God as the only one who can satisfy and fulfill our lives. But listen to this. By rejecting the only one that can satisfy humanity that is searching for purpose, humanity that is searching for meaning, by rejecting the only one that has created them to be satisfied in him, humanity is left with this aching void, trying to find meaning, trying to fill a spot in their heart that was only made by God to fulfill. So they walk around with this, this aching void in their soul. And what have they done to fill that void? What have they done to, or what have they tried to fill that void with? They have chased money. They've chased sex. They've chased, chased possessions, power, prestige. All to satisfy that void that can only be satisfied by God. And ultimately... Whether it is in this world or it is in the world to come, they will find out, just like the writer of Ecclesiastes did, who was believed to be Solomon, that all of these things are vanity. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, Solomon says. Or meaningless, 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 chasing all sorts of meaningless commodities and left feeling even more empty. And left feeling even more void. And some people say, I don't feel any void. I don't feel anything. I don't care. You remember what that was like, don't you? Because the people that we are talking about of the world used to be you and I. And that is why you are here this morning. Because what, was, what, what you were trying to fulfill in your hearts, you could not do on your own. You had to be drawn by the Father to Christ in order to find out, this is what I've always been looking for. You were once that person seeking satisfaction from the world, only to find that the world has nothing to offer and the world cannot satisfy. The world, and sadly many who pose as believers in the church, they make the same mistake of Israel. Israel of old. Who forsook the Lord, who is the fountain of living water, to make for themselves cisterns. But they are broken and they can hold no water. Instead of going to the fountain of living water, they have made for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water, trying to satisfy themselves. Only to find out in the end, ultimately, you cannot satisfy yourself. 
forsaking the fountain of living water. In rebellion, they forsake God in every single way and attempt to make their own way apart from God. They attempt to create for themselves ways to be satisfied apart from God. And soon they find out that the more they try to replace God, the more empty they become. This fallen world cannot, as Jesus says, and will not seek God for themselves. Yes. Yes. It is their nature. It was your nature yes. to cast God aside. Yes. It is their nature. It was your nature to throw off what they believe and what you believe were the constraints of religion. How many people do you know say, I don't want anything to do with religion I love God. I'm more spiritual, but I don't want anything to do with the church. I don't want anything to do with religion. And by casting off these so-called shackles, they believed that they were somehow freeing themselves. But they were becoming more enslaved to themselves. They believed that subjecting themselves to a higher power was meaningless. And what they discovered was by casting off the higher power, they found themselves. Living a more meaningless life. They wondered and they began to ask questions, the most common questions of man, like, who am I? They wondered and they began to ask questions, the most common questions of man. Why am I here? They wondered and they began to ask the most common questions of man. Where am I going? Have you ever asked yourself those questions? And what did they try to do? They tried to answer these most common questions, questions that you and I have asked ourselves. And they tried to answer these questions and make sense of them apart from God. And what answers did they find when they tried to answer the most common questions of humanity? What answers did they find when they tried to answer these questions apart from God? Here were their answers. This is how humanity reasons why they exist apart from God. Are you ready? You are an accident. That's the answer they came up with. You're a product of chance. That's the answer that they came up with. You're a product of survival of the fittest. You're just evolved bacteria. You're an evolved monkey. These are the answers that they came up with when they tried to answer these questions. The most common questions of man apart from God. There is no reason. There is no purpose. All things are random. Nothing is intentional. You are even an accident. The answer apart from God is dark. The answer apart from God is depressing. The answer apart from God is dismal. It is devastating. And ultimately, apart from God, it is meaningless. Men thought that they could reject God. And by... Believing that they could cast God aside, they could kill their responsibility to that higher power. But instead of killing that higher power, they ended up killing themselves. And it was into this fallen, dark, empty world of disappointment, of despondency, that the Lord Jesus Christ came. It was that world that I just described that you and I have existed in. And it was into that world that the light came and shone in the darkness. 
And it was by grace that he shone light on your darkened eyes. It was by grace that he took off the scales of your eyes so that you could see, so that you could not exist in the world that I just described. It was by grace that the Father sent the Son, who was empowered by the Holy Spirit, to come to seek and to save you and I who were lost. He is the bread of life. He is the only one who can satisfy the deepest longings for the human soul. Only through Him can sinners obtain forgiveness. Only through Him can we be be restored to a right relationship with God. It is only through Him that we can receive eternal life. Only God. And only God can quicken the heart. That is darkened in that depression, despondency and despair. And bring him into the light. Only God can revive the dead man. Only God can reveal to sinful man that he alone is the satisfier of your soul. Now, have you experienced that? Have you experienced that it is only God who is the satisfier of your soul? I have heard people say many times before, I wish I could go back to the first days of me loving and being in love with Christ. My first days of salvation, they were so good. And we look back at those first days as if those are better days and these are worse days. I say in, in a way of, of making at least some kind of, of comparison. If you ask me, do I love my wife now more or do I love her more when I first met her? What do you think I would say if I was smart? I love her more now, of course. And here is why. I have seen this woman through trial and come out as pure gold. I have seen my wife, my queen, I have seen her love me in a way that I could have never deserved or even imagined. I have seen her be the most amazing mother that I could ever have imagined to be married to. I have seen her care for me. I could go on and on and on. I did not know all those things when I first met her. I just knew that she was cute. Now it has been almost seven years that I've been with my wife. And what can I do? I can look back and say that through all of that time to now, we are here and my love for her is growing. It's stronger. You say, do you still get butterflies? They're different butterflies. They've grown. Now they're not butterflies. They're eagles. They're no longer butterflies. They're eagles. They're no longer goosebumps. They're gigantic pimples. That's gross, but you understand what I'm trying to say. Don't look back and say, I wish I could go back. Go forward. Is your faith in God stronger now? Or was it stronger when you first began? Have you not seen what he has brought you through? Have you not seen the errors and the trials that he has got you through and kept you out of? And you're going to look back and say, I wish that I was a kindergartner again. You're in college now. Don't look back and wish you could go back to preschool. You didn't know anything in preschool. Of course, the tests were a lot easier in preschool. But you weren't achieving as much back then. The jewels that are being crowned on your head when you will receive that you will receive when you when you enter glory are much bigger than they were when you were in preschool. So go forward. Yes. Don't go backward. Yes. 
Where did that come from? I don't know. In this first section, Christ deals with the sermon of the bread of life. Jesus presents himself as a spiritual food for the famished soul. Now, in this concluding session or section of the sermon of the bread of life, Jesus urges people to believe in him. We will see in this next passage three things. The declaration and responsive the declaration of Christ and responsibility of man. Number one, we will see the disgust of the Jews. Number two, and we will see the promises of Christ. Number three, number one, the declaration of Christ. Verse 51. I am the bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give you for and I, the bread I will give for life of the world is my flesh for the fifth time in this sermon of the bread of life. Jesus makes this declaration. I am, he is, the bread that came down from heaven. And with that declaration, Jesus adds a promise. A promise that carries with it responsibility. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The interesting thing is this. Jesus has not left us in verse 44 that says... No man can come to me unless the father draws us. He also adds to that and you have a responsibility to come. Think that. Think of that. The father draws. It is his work to draw. And mysteriously, in ways that I cannot understand, he has also charged you with the responsibility of coming. Is he empowering you? Yes. Must you just sit there and say, well, I'm going to come. No, you must come. Think about that. You have a responsibility. We are not teaching responsibility less uh, theology. We are speaking, preaching responsibility theology. Meaning this. It is true that God is sovereign over salvation. And mankind is charged with the responsibility of believing. How do you work that out? I don't know. But I do know God is sovereign over salvation. Yes. He is the one who saves. Yes. Yes. How do you work out man's responsibility? You're responsible for believing. That is the charge of God. He says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Mm. Is there a coming in your in your Corner, is there a coming in your in your world? Must you come? Yes, you must. Verse 40 says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So God is in charge of changing the heart. And when he does, you come. Guess what? You will come because he has changed the heart. You will come because he has changed the heart. It is the work of God to open up the hearts of his own. And it is the responsibility of his own to believe, to come. I heard a story uh, from David Platt, um, my sister Doreen's new favorite minister who has just replaced me, I guess. (laughs) And he has he was scheduled to fly out overseas to preach. He tells a story that his flight was delayed a number of times because of the weather. Each time that he was scheduled to depart, he was either delayed or he arrived at his destination hours than he was expected to arrive. At the end of this ordeal, David Platt, your favorite minister, he was six days late 
to his final destination. He was supposed to preach and he was six days late to preach. The question came to him because he's a Calvinist. They asked him, was not God sovereign over each of these events? And his answer was yes. Absolutely God is sovereign over each of those events. And American Airlines will be held responsible for that. Yes. How true it is that yes, God is sovereign. And we are held responsibility or responsible for believing or not believing. That's right. Amen. <laughs> we will be held responsible. And Jesus uses this truth, this truth of responsibility to illustrate this truth about bread. Now, here's what it is. He says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Think about the, the idea of bread and food. We have this responsibility, right? Food is worthless unless it is eaten. Amen. What good is food going to do for you if you don't eat it? Right. right? How many times have you been sick? And what, are, what, is, what do people encourage you to do? Eat. Stay hydrated. And what does the sick person say? I don't want any food. I don't want any food. I, 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 ugh, food is making me sick. Do you realize food is going to help you get well? And what does the unregenerated person say when you try to offer them spiritual food? I don't want it. It's making me sick right now. I'm disgusted by it. Why? Because they're sick. It amazes me that even as I stand in the back sometimes and watch us sing... Songs of worship. I didn't see that back there. Sing songs of worship that are essentially speaking the gospel in song that you sit there like, I can't wait for this song to be over. Do you realize that you are singing? You are uniting your voice in declaring a gospel truth. So for you to stand there and not sing or to stand there unmoved is to say this gospel doesn't move me. I'm sick of it. To sit here and be unmoved by the gospel that's going forth and say, I wish you would hurry up. Are you sick? You don't want to eat? You don't feel like eating today? Oh, you must be sick. Huh? Yes. I don't want to go to church today. Are you sick? You should ask your, 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 your whoever the next time you say, let's go to church. And they say, no, I don't want to go. Ask them, are you sick? In your soul? Because if you're not, then you're going to want to come to church. Your kids who fight you, why? Because they're sick. That's right. They're sick. Amen. It's not because they're rebel. It's not because they don't like you. They're rebellious in their soul. They are sick. Your loved ones, your brothers, your sisters who don't want to hear this truth. Yes. It's not because of me. I will say this. I cannot name one person who says Antonio is, is offensive. Instead, they say, I don't like what he's teaching. And I don't stay too far, straight too far away from the word. Mm -hmm. It's not what I'm saying. It's what he's saying. That's, right. That's why they'll go to Valley Bible, because it's a lot more digestible than this. And I say that because it's the closest church and it's the biggest church and it's the most heretical. Anyways, let's go on. Right. What good... Is food if you're not going to eat it. Or here's another thing. If you're not going to apply it, why even come and get it? 
Why would you go to a restaurant if you're not going to eat? You ever been with people like that? They come with you to this big giant restaurant and they're not eating. I know a person. I won't say their name, but I'm always amazed. I wish that she would just give me everything on her plate so that I could eat it for her. (laughs) Meaning this, if you know all these things and don't act upon it, what is it going to profit you? It will profit you nothing. You know all these things, but you don't do them. Guess what? The Bible says more judgment will be thrown upon your head for knowing all these things and not doing them. Luke 12, 47 and Hebrews 10. You are putting on yourself greater judgment by knowing these things and not doing them. Many people say, wow, if I could just sit under the teachings of R.C. Sproul, if I could just sit under the teachings of John MacArthur, or I know that many of you were impressed with Chad Vegas this past week. And in the back of your two-timing mind, you were thinking, man, if I could just sit under Chad Vegas, wow, I would really grow. Why? What good will it do you if you don't do anything with it? You could sit under the greatest teacher and gain all of this knowledge and do nothing with it. What good is that? For you to say, wow, I sit under Paul, I sit under Apollos, I sit under Cephas. Did these people die for you? Of course not. You have a responsibility to take these words and live them and do them and apply them. If you don't, no, no matter who you're sitting under, you will not stand before Christ and say, I sat under Paul. I sat under Sproul. I sat under MacArthur. He will say, I don't care. What did you do? What did you do? My dad used to say, I hate when people say, I need to buy a bike. You ain't going to ride it. That's how you say it. <laughs> he used to say, I hate when people say, I need, to, I need to, to, to buy some weights. You ain't going to lift it. That's how my dad would say it. He would say, I hate when people say, I need to get a treadmill. You ain't going to get on it. That's how my dad would talk. They're just going to sit there like the rest of the thing is collecting dust. That's how my dad would say it. I remember that. Remember that? Yes. I need to get a treadmill. You ain't going to get on it. That's how my dad would talk. He grew up with soul people. What good will it do you if you're not going to apply it? Sorry, it's Father's Day. Gaining more understanding, more responsibility will be placed on your head. And not that you shouldn't gain more understanding. Gain it. But remember, you will be held responsible for it. Another responsibility, if you're not eating, or if you're eating, you're hungry. If you're not eating, you're not hungry. And remember this, sinners who are satisfied with their sin have no hunger for spiritual food. We've dealt with that point already. But if God awakens your heart, he's going to lead you to the bread of life. And then you eat by faith. Don't you eat by faith? When you eat, you're trusting that you're eating something that's not contaminated. When you eat, you're trusting that you're eating something that's being nourishing to your body and that will help you to grow. So it is with Christ, the bread of life. When you come to Christ, you are eating in faith and trusting that he will satisfy your soul. When you partake of the living bread, Christ, you are trusting he will satisfy. He will satisfy. He will satisfy. And here's another one. Eating is personal. These are your responsibilities. Eating is personal. Personal. I can't eat for you. 
Brother Mark, the elder, cannot eat for Brother Mark, this the junior. Junior must eat for himself. Senior must eat for himself. He can lead him to food, but he can't eat for him. You must eat for yourself. You must eat for yourself. You cannot also, and I'm going to say this uh, hopefully clearly, you cannot also eat once a week. If you're waiting for Sunday to get your next meal, you are famished throughout the week. You will be famished throughout the week. If you're waiting for just one meal throughout your week and surviving off of that one meal, how would you live? You would be the most unhealthy person walking around. You must feed yourself and you must do so often. Man is responsible for partaking in the bread of life. The Lord Jesus, he further defines the bread of life as that which he would voluntarily give for the world, for life of the world. And he specifies what this bread is. Now, here's where it gets really weird. He specifies that the bread is his flesh. The bread is my flesh, he says, as we discussed earlier, where there is confusion, Jesus does not clarify confusion. He's instead he adds to the confusion by becoming more confusing. Well, if Jesus wanted to cause utter confusion, he knew exactly how to do that. And he says to them, eat my flesh. What would you say if you were in that crowd? And Jesus says to them, I've got bread. It's my flesh. Come and eat. What would your response be? Of course, we know that he was speaking prophetically. Of course, we know that it was not necessarily his flesh, flesh, but it was going to be his body, his blood that was going to be offered up for the payment of many through redemption. Romans 6.23 teaches that the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. John 1.29 tells us that Christ came to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we know all of these things. We know that, that Christ came to be a payment for our sins. That He came to atone for our sins. And that payment would be paid in full. That that payment would be definite. It would be particular. It would be specific. It would be actual. And it would be on God's behalf of the elect. We knew all these things. It would be a limited in, ext in its extent, but God, by his sovereign grace, would make it unlimited in his effect for all who would trust in it. Christ offered his flesh. And he says it's not just for Israel, it's for the world. Amen. So that we could come and be and live and have life in him. But what would your response be if Jesus said to you, Louis, eat my flesh? I think that verse 52, the Jews disputed among them saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They were disgusted. You would be disgusted if Jesus said to you, eat my flesh. Did he just say to eat my flesh? Nudging you. Did he just say eat him? That would be your response. And of course, he's not speaking about cannibalism. And another thing he's not speaking about is the Lord's, the Lord's Supper. He's not speaking about communion. Instead, he's speaking about himself partaking in all of him. Accepting, embracing all of him. 
We've just discussed the significance of this statement, but it's compounded by others that have already been made, which is this. This man is giving us more than bread. This man is saying that he is from heaven. And now this man is saying, give, eat his flesh. What's he doing? He's blinding their eyes. So that they could not see. And he's drawing those who are his closer to him. They knew about eternal life. The Jews did not reject that. They, they accepted this doctrine. But they stumbled on this man saying, eat my flesh. And it points to the rebellious heart that still exists today. That when you offer them Christ, they say, how? How is he going to save me? What is he going to do for me? Is, is faith enough? Can this death really give me eternal life? On and on the questions they have. And they make the same mistake as the unregenerated person who thinks that they can find meaning apart from Christ. Eat my eat his flesh, believe in Christ, go to church, wake up at 10 o'clock or before that to get. No. And what does it do? It causes it causes disgust. It causes disgust. Christ causes disgust. Do you know, have you recognized that in your lives so far? That even of the people who claim to believe in Christ, when you start to explain to them the true Christ of the, of the Bible, their reaction is disgust. They don't want to hear what you have to say. How many times have we been out to the marketplace and we start to describe how God is sovereign in salvation? They're disgusted. Are you telling me that, that I have no, no say in the matter, that it's all God? How many people have we met that have been of other religions, of Islam? And of Hinduism who have said, Jesus, you mean he's the only way? No, my friend, you are too narrow minded. And they, of course, want to walk away with us being friends, but being disgusted at the one that we are offering. <clears throat> the Bible says in Second Timothy 4, 3, there's a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Brothers and sisters, don't let that be you. Amen. Don't be disgusted at this bread. Right. Don't be disgusted at this bread. He is the bread of life. Amen. And I'd like, like us to read the end of this. Verse 59 or 53. The promises of Christ. <clears throat> truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Once again, Jesus does not tone down, clarify or soften his words. Instead, he makes his words more difficult to swallow by adding the concept of this drinking blood. If you thought eating flesh was bad... 
And Jesus adds to it, oh, and, and drink my blood as well. And what do you think they would think once he adds this extra teaching? They think he's crazy. We're going to find out in just a few verses next time they eventually walk away. Let me say this real quick before we get into next week. These were disciples of Christ. It was said that he had at least 70 following him. And when he gets to this idea of eating flesh and drinking blood, he turns around and there are only the 12. And one of them is a devil. Because they could not handle the hard sayings of Christ. What about you? Can you handle the teachings of Christ? He asked them later, he says, are you offended by this? He was asking them if, if they are offended by something he did not intend to be offensive. Instead, he's being absolutely honest about what is necessary to come to him. What will you be offended by when the word of God is preached? What will cause you to say, I will not go there anymore? Will it be what this man says and his heart sinks? What if he says to you, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn and offer him the other? Will you turn and say, that's enough? What if he says, if someone asks you to go one mile, go with them too? You will say, will you say it? That's a little bit too much. What if he says to you, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him? Will you say, now you've gone too far? What hard saying of Christ will cause you to say, I will go no more? Or will you be like one of the ones who stood, specifically Peter, and when Jesus says, do you want to go away too? Will your response be that of Peter's who says, where else can I go? You have the words to eternal life. Will that be your response every time the word of God is preached? And will you bow before it each time? These people could not accept the words of Christ. They could not accept a crucified Messiah. It was the rock that they stumbled upon. But for those who could accept it and for those who do believe, Christ gives four promises. And they are this. The first promise is made in the negative sense that those who reject him have no life, which means the opposite is true, that those who accept him do have life. Amen. Those who accept Christ have life. Do you know that is true about yourself this morning? That if you have accepted Christ, you have life. Secondly, this. Those who eat his flesh and drink his blood have eternal life. So not only do you have abundant life, but you also have eternal life, which means this. When this present life ends, there is another life to come that will be eternal. And it's yours. If you believe in Christ, bless you. And that will result in eternity. It will result in completeness, completeness, and it will last forever. Do you think about that? At all? Do you think about the life to come at all? And do you think about the fact that it's yours for eternity? Yes. Yes. Or do you cling on to this life as if it is the only thing you'll ever have? Christ makes a promise to those who believe in him that you will have an everlasting life. Yes. A life that never ends. Yes. For those who do not, they will die two deaths. One now and one later. For those who believe, you will live two lives. 
one here and one there. And that one there will never end. Do you think about that? Yes. I was um, at, at, at the gym the other day and, and the, the teacher there was saying to, to the class. Your reflexes are going to begin to betray you. The agility that you used to have is going to begin to betray you. The ability to lose weight as quickly as you used to is going to begin to betray you. And as I started looking around, he, I didn't, he didn't know that I was taking this in a, in a biblical sense. But I started to see the faces of people start to nod their head and say yes. Some of the older men who were sitting in that classroom with me that were starting to say, yes, I have experienced the fact that I can't move like I used to. And there are younger people coming in here. There are younger people coming in here who are rolling with me that are stronger than than I am. I have it there in my mind, but my body's just not reacting anymore. What's happening? They're decaying. They're dying. I have to take naps now. I'm only 35 years old. If I don't take a nap, I need a Snickers because I'm not myself. <laughs> What's happening to me? I'm dying. What's happening to you? You're dying. You can lift all the weights and take all the nutrients and, and have as many creatine drinks and aloe drinks and whatever else. You're going to die. And if your only hope is this life now, Joel Osteen, then take advantage of it because this is all you're going to get. That's it. Amen. And enjoy it. Yes. If you read that book, he almost sounds like the pessimist of the scripture who says, if this life is all we have, then let us eat, drink, and be merry. Because this is all you're going to get. Mm-hmm. But if there is a life to come... And there is. But since there is a life to come, let us not cling to this world. Let us not cling to our bodies that are so quickly, rapidly betraying us. Do you realize it's going to be July? I was just buying Christmas presents yesterday. This life, like a vapor, is slowly fading away. And if this is all that we have, then we are the most, as we're going to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, we are the most pitied of men. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. You're not even supposed to be here. Your faith is also in vain. What are you even believing in? Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God were liars because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not in fact raise if in fact the dead are not raised for if the dead are raised not even Christ has been raised or not raised not even Christ has been raised and if the Christ has not been raised your faith is worthless you are still in your sins then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if we hope in Christ in this life only then we are the most pitied of all men there is a life to come. Amen. There is an eternal life. And the promise that Christ gives you is that he will raise you up on that last day. Amen. He will raise you up. Your spirits will leave this body, but then there will be a time where he will take this body 
And there will be no, no more betraying of my body to myself. My body will be glorified. It will be perfect. We can eat as much as we want. And there will be no betraying of our bodies. There will be no tear. There will be no pain. Look forward to that day. Enjoy that day. And the fourth promise is this. That by declaring he is, his flesh is true food and that his blood is true drink, he promises union with you. That when you partake in these things, he says, you will abide in me and I will abide in you. You are united with Christ. John 14, 20 says, in that day you will know that I am in the Father, you are in me and I am in you. You should trip on that passage all day. That should be a passage that you just meditate on. I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. How beautiful a statement that we could just read past and not realize that he's in us. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I am him, he, much, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old, has, old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Galatians 2, 20 declares, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians 1, 27 reminds us that it is Christ. Who is our hope of glory. And as we read on through the the rest of these verses. Jesus speaks about the authority to make such promises. Because the living father has sent me. I live because of the father. So whoever eats me, he says, will also live because of me. And we conclude with the words of Christ. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died, who ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Christ has united us to him. And this morning, he is calling you to unite with him at his table. To sup with him. To fellowship with him. To declare, as Chad said this past Wednesday, the unspoken word of truth. That Christ lives in you and that you live in Christ. And we declare this truth by partaking in the Lord's table this morning. Let's stand.